0: Okay, we're back for uh, part two of preoperative imaging in aortic disease. Uh, again, my name is Stefan Zimmerman. I'm an associate professor here at Johns Hopkins working with Dr. Fishman. And this is a talk that was re- given at one of our recent courses um, down in Orlando uh, over Presidents Day weekend this past year. Um, about preoperative imaging in aortic disease. If you missed part one, we reviewed um, the thoracic aorta and talked about different size thresholds for defining aneurysms and um, size thresholds for intervention uh, and repair of the uh, aortic aneurysms in asymptomatic patients. And now we're gonna focus on the abdominal aorta. Um, so uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, basically the, the number that we use when we thinking about the abdominal aorta is three centimeters. So here's a n- nice example of kind of a classic abdominal aortic aneurysm. Um, This is just above the aortic bifurcation. You've got that low attenuation stuff inside the the lumen of the abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is uh, something we would call mural thrombus. Um, We know it's not wall thickening or intramural hematoma because we see this calcification here anteriorly that represents the intima. And so if this low attenuation material is within the intima, then we know in fact this is not uh, wall thickening, but rather some sort of stuff that's within the lumen. And In this case, it's um, a very common um, thing that we see called mural thrombus. Um, here's an, another example of a typical uh, aneurysm of the abdominal aorta. This one's a little trickier in that it involves the renal artery origins, an important thing to note um, and in your reports because this makes repair uh, much more challenging. Um, so, this is a 6.6 centimeter aneurysm. You can see on the uh, MIP image on the right hand side that the left renal artery is arising from the aneurysm itself. So, to be repaired, um, this uh, aneurysm, uh, most likely they're going to have to do a graft from the um, actual repair itself to the uh, renal arteries, and performing something like an endovascular repair with stent is going to be much more challenging. So, let's talk about the normal abdominal aortic. Abdominal aorta, um, an aneurysm uh, is defined as diameter over three centimeters. Or in smaller patients, you could have an area of focal dilation uh, in which the diameter uh, is increased to over 50% of the adjacent normal region. Um, and you would call that an aneurysm as well. So these could be, you know, kind of your little ladies who have a relatively small aorta, but you see that there's this focal dilation and um, it may not actually reach the three centimeter threshold but when you look at it, it certainly looks like an aneurysm. And then if you do the measurement and you see this over 50% change relative to the normal region, then you can, you can, you can call it an aneurysm, even if it's less than three centimeters in size. Uh, causes for abdominal aortic okay, aneurysms, you think about hypertension is smoking, you know, aging is the most common cause. Um, some people are just predisposed to developing these aneurysms. Then there are the categories of patients who have a genetic defect, like the connective tissue disorders, you know, Marfans, Lois-Dietz, or other familial aneurysms. Uh, infection, we think about a little bit in the abdominal aorta. Um, we see mycotic aneurysms down the abdominal aorta a little more commonly than up in the thoracic aorta. And so that's something to, to think about as well what are the thresholds for abdominal aortic aneurysm repair Um, so we talked about this in the thoracic aorta in the abdominal aorta it turns out that same number that we thought about in the thoracic aorta is the one we use in the abdomen five and a half centimeters and then that same number for rapid growth um, we also use in the abdomen uh, one centimeter per year so it makes it really easy um, if you want to remember what number is important to the surgeons for repairing asymptomatic aneurysms anywhere um, in the thoracic or abdominal aorta, five and a half centimeter is is the way to go. Um, Symptomatic aneurysms, so that's for asymptomatic aneurysms, but symptomatic aneurysms um, should always be repaired. And that's because they're riskier. The fact that you have symptoms from the aneurysm suggests there's some degree of instability uh, associated with that aneurysm, and therefore they should be repaired uh, much sooner rather than later. Obviously, not always easy to determine whether symptoms a patient has, like you know, back pain, belly pain, are really related to the aneurysm or not. Um, you know, you look for, on imaging, changes within the aneurysm appearance that might suggest um, that it that it is causing the symptoms, but it can be pretty tough. Saccular aneurysms, so these are these narrow-necked aneurysms or uh, asymmetric, you know, uh, uh, sort of asymmetric aneurysms where they're involving much more of one wall than the other. Those guys are also a little more unstable than your standard fusiform aneurysm, and you and and uh, guidelines for the surgeons suggest they should consider elective repair if they see those aneurysms as well. So some notes about uh, acquisition protocols. Um, basically, if you've seen any of you know our lectures before on CTSS, the you know, pancreas protocols, liver protocols. Um, all very very similar, um, and this is the same. So arterial phase imaging for the pancreas, for the uh, liver, for the aorta is all uh, pretty much um, you know equivalent in terms of the technique we use. We put large um, catheters in the antecubital fossa, as big, big as we can get. 18 is the the ideal, um, and we inject um, low osmolar or isoosmolar contrast. Uh, generally we're using in the order of 80 cc's if it's a larger larger patient maybe we may bump it up to 120 and we do a very rapid injection um, hoping to get at least six cc's a second Um, in patients with maybe a poor IV access we may go down to five but generally we want to keep it there and we definitely want to use a saline chaser to clear contrast out of the um, superior vena cava the saline chaser is important it maximizes the contrast bolus by flushing the contrast from the veins into the circulation. So you get a little bit more of a dense contrast bolus and it minimizes the beam hardening artifact. So here's an example, uh, patient without a saline chaser, you can see that SVC beam hardening artifact, which, you know, if you're doing your volume rendered images, if you wanna get a nice sort of 3D representation of the entire uh, aorta, for instance, this is gonna mess that up um, and you're gonna have the streaky um, artifacts right around your aorta. When you use the saline chaser, it smooths everything out. Um, gets rid of that really streaky artifact, and then your 3D images will be uh, much improved. Um, What about acquisition timing? So how do we do it? Um, There are a few different methods one can use. Um, We generally use bolus tracking method. Um, You can do timing bolus, or you can even do um, just sort of an empiric delay, uh, roughly 25 seconds or so but we find that the bolus tracking is probably the easiest and the most consistent. Um, if we're doing a CTA of the chest, we're gonna look uh, with our tracker in the ascending aorta um, and wait for a threshold of roughly 250 to 300 Hounsfield units. If we're um, doing a CTA chest abdomen pelvis, generally we put our tracker in the abdominal aorta um, and do the same uh, process. Other uh, technical parameter uh, issues, um, sort of standard stuff here, we use very narrow detectors, you know, what's available from the uh, manufacturer with our particular scanner. Um, we generally make .75 millimeter recons with some overlap. Um, so .75 by .5 millimeter reconstructions, the overlap smooths out your 3D reconstructions. If you do, say for instance, a .75 by a .75, then you won't have any overlap and actually your um, 3D volume rendered images and MIPS may look a little jagged around the edges so that overlap helps really smooth things out um, 0.75 is no magic number um, you know you can people do 0. 0.5 people do 0.81 you know those are all fine I think you want to be probably in the in the order of one or less uh, when you do your um, reconstructions and then that's sufficient what about ECG gating? This is an important question that comes up a lot. When does one use ECG gating? And 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 you know, our techs ask us all the time when patients come for, um, for imaging. You know, do, do we do this as a gated study? Um, well, first of all, what's the objective of the ECG gating? You know, you want to minimize cardiac motion. So, what's that gonna help with? That's gonna really help with looking at the aortic root structures. So the bottom line is if we have anybody who we're interested in looking at the aortic root or ascending aortic region, then we're gonna do ECG gating. Um, what's the downside? Why not do it in everybody? Well, because it does have, um, generally have a slightly higher radiation dose associated with it. Um, so you don't wanna do it in everybody if you don't have to. Um, here's an example of one nice um, sort of uh, benefit of doing the Uh, ecg gate images, and that is avoiding this kind of entity of pseudo-dissection. So this is the same patient scanned, you know, a few hours um, between the two scans here. Um, The first scan on top shows this line in the ascending aorta up into the aortic arch, which looks kind of like a dissection flap. Um, And this scan was not performed with ECG gating. Um, And this is the type of problem you can get into. Um, motion from the, the um, cardiac motion can give you these fake lines basically within the um, aorta that look like a dissection we weren't sure um, so we brought the patient back we rescan with gating and sure enough it looks perfectly clean no dissection whatsoever so you really don't don't want to call a type A dissection by mistake Right? that would be a big problem for the patient they could end up on the operating table with their chest cracked open for no good reason, you don't want that to happen. So um, when in doubt, um, if there's any question, always use gated imaging. Um, You know, there's sometimes this hesitancy to repeat a CT scan within 24 hours because of the worry about contrast dose. But I think that's something that should should not be really a consideration when we're talking about something uh, that's potentially life-threatening, like a type A dissection. The kidneys can certainly take it and much more important to not have the patient undergo some very invasive um, procedure like um, you know, a sternotomy uh, uh, just just um, so you can give, um, or so you can avoid extra contrast. Uh, another example, um, this one actually happened more recently. Um, this patient had this line in their ascending aorta e which was thought to represent a type A dissection. This is one of the examples of this kind of thing gone wrong where the patient actually was transferred from one of our sister hospitals to our hospital to have this dissection repaired on an emergent basis they were in the operating room and the fortunately the anesthesiologist had an uh one of those transesophageal echocardiogram uh, echocardiography um, probes and they were looking at the ascending aorta and did not see a dissection so so you know had the um, you know forethought to to speak up and mention it to the surgeon and they stopped everything um, and uh, you know talked to us we looked at the case we said well you know it looks like it could be motion um, and uh, they sent the patient to the uh, CT from the OR and we got a repeat study with gating um, and sure enough the patient did not have a dissection um, so this is uh, fortunate for the patient they actually were on in the operating room they hadn't you know basically cut the skin yet so the patient avoided the full-on um, uh, uh, surgery unfortunately the patient did have was intubated at the time and they did a right mainstem bronchus intubation you can see on the right hand upper right hand image there and collapsed his left lung which led to an extra day or two in the hospital so this was not a you know not without problems for this patient um, and basically all started because of a misdiagnosis uh, caused by cardiac motion and one thing I want to point out here if you look at the arrow you see that line that's the thing that looked on the left-hand image like it could be a dissection but if you look kind of underneath the arrow and behind the arrow you also see a line in the pulmonary artery and I've noticed in these cases where we see something that looks kind of like a dissection um, you often see a similar finding in the pulmonary artery so I've never in my life encountered somebody with both aortic dissection a simultaneous aortic dissection and pulmonary artery dissection so if you ever see that something that looks like that you should really question uh, question your diagnosis and think about you know is this just a, a motion artifact and should I repeat the study with gating? okay so that's um uh, some discussion of the technical aspects of acquiring um, CT imaging for aneurysm follow-up, and what about post-processing? So standard things we do, we create sagittal and coronal NPRs, I mean, I think this is basically standard for, for every type of study that, that almost everybody's doing. I don't know that there are many places not doing this now. Um, we also um, use our uh, interactive workstations and create maximum intensity projections, so MIPS, which show the anatomy really nicely and then the volume rendered images are really important not so much for us for diagnosis or uh, for, for our reports but rather for communication of findings to the uh, surgeons and um, you know whoever is managing this patient they really appreciate these volume rendered images which have helped them get a sense of the anatomy much better curve planar images are really important these are the images where basically the the um, uh, the software follows the center line of the aorta and kind of uh, elongates the aorta. These really, really help with making accurate me- uh, measurements, which I'll talk about in a second. So here's an example coronal MPR, you know, standard stuff. Um, we create the sagittal oblique MPRs, also known as the candy cane view, which go through the the um, ascending aorta, the arch, and the descending, so you can get them all in one plane if you perform this sagittal oblique candy cane view, which is really nice. Volume rendered imaging on the left, um, and uh, uh, both of the surface display here and then sort of an average display on the right. Um, both really show the anatomy nicely. Um, the one on the right kind of gives you a sense of more the aorta in space um, and the structures around it, whereas the one on the left really gets you a nice look at the surface of the aorta. Um, uh, and so both are, are quite helpful. Um, this is a nice example, patient with Takayasu's has a sort of irregular Uh, contorts the aorta and sort of bumpy um, with some wall thickening on the left-hand image and you can really appreciate um, all that irregularity on the right-hand image as well. One note of caution, um, if you're using volume rendered images, um, they uh, are a little misleading at times in patients with very large aneurysms that contain a large amount of mural thrombus. This patient has, on the right-hand image, I think you can appreciate has a large, aneurysm of the abdominal aorta, and the aneurysm sac itself is calcified with sort of a thin um, column of contrast going through the middle. If you use your surface shaded volume rendered images on the left, it looks like there's a normal or relatively normal caliber aorta. You don't really appreciate the aneurysm. So important to mix your volume rendered images with um, some MPRs and other static images to make sure that you're not giving the wrong message to your referring clinicians this is an example of the curved planar reformatted image and these are really really nice um, for one showing kind of the full extent of the aorta and the amount of aortic disease you know in one snapshot you get a really good look at you know, whether or not there are any aneurysms, in this case there are none, and then also the extent of atherosclerotic disease. So really nice and handy. Uh, and then we'll talk about later how they're also helpful for measurements. Now, the new kid on the block is this cinematic rendering, which we, um, uh, which um, you know, Dr. Fishman um, and and others here at Hopkins have been really heavily interested in and in talking about a lot and writing about a lot, and and it's really pretty cool stuff. Um, so this is probably the Going to be the future for for us for volume rendering where we we produce these really sort of photorealistic images here which you know look look like you're kind of looking at a model uh, that somebody created of the of the um thoracic aorta uh, rather than these these reconstructed images so um this is a pretty cool example of one patient has a really uh dilated internal mammary arteries bilaterally because of an aortic occlusion um, so this is probably what we're going to start seeing in the future what about reporting? Um, so we talked about uh, acquisition, we talked about um, different uh, post-processing, and now we're gonna talk about what do we put in our report. So um, going back to these, this uh, paper, there's no real white paper again from, from the radiology societies, but there is a paper from the American Heart, American College of Cardiology, which suggests different things that should be included in a standard CT or MR report. Um, and, and these are the measurements they suggest, sort of standard stuff, really nothing that you would you know, be surprised about. Full disclosure, we don't provide all these measurements in our reports. Um, generally, uh, you know, we focus on the sinus of Valsalva, sinotubular junction, mid ascending aorta, really in, in this case, number three, mid ascending aorta. Not, I'm not necessarily picking the mid ascending aorta in itself, I'd rather just pick the largest ascending aortic diameter. Um, arch measurements, generally I'll you know, give one arch measurement, and then um, I think the proximal, mid, and distal, these are also uh, helpful to include in your reports. Um, and then this is some other information from that same guidelines, talking about what are the pieces of information outside of just numbers of uh, or diameter numbers that you should include in your um, reports and and I think these are all things that we would include um, routinely if we saw them Um, and so um, nothing nothing really that new to report here Um, some depending on on your institution you may be asked to or you may be already uh, reporting measurements that are important for planning of um, potential endovascular repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms Um, we have Not done this at Hopkins routinely, um, where I trained at uh, Penn. Actually, we we still we do this as a routine. um, Provide all these measurements um, that you see, you know, A through what was that uh, G um, in in this patient, um, uh, because they help determine what kind of endovascular device can be placed in this patient and whether any device can be placed at all. at least here at Hopkins, and in certain, again, it's institution dependent, um, the um, vascular surgeons here basically take the images from the scanner and then send them directly to the manufacturer of the stent devices, and they figure out, you know, the the details from there. Um, so we don't have to report all these detailed measurements, thankfully. Um, but you want to make sure you have the concepts in your head about what, what is important um, and, and the important thing for planning endovascular repair is this concept of the landing zone. And, and that's H, letter H in this um, diagram. That's the where the top struts of your endovascular device are gonna sit, and that's called the landing zone. And you need to make sure that your landing zone is A, big enough to hold the struts, and then B, is not distorted in such a way that would make the struts not necessarily sit correctly. And so, so what do I mean? I take a look at this case. I think this is a great example of how a landing zone can be a problem this patient has basically a 180 degree kink right at the landing zone so um for this patient um there's a severely angulated um neck to the aneurysm that's the sort of upper part of the aneurysm with the Um, really severe angulation at the landing zone. And so this patient would probably not be a great endovascular repair candidate because of this anatomy. So these are the things that we report, um, um, focus on our reports. We don't provide all the detailed numbers per se, usually just give a number for the biggest aneurysm size, but um, we do include things like this if the landing zone looks particularly problematic for endovascular repair. Now, one note about aneurysm measurements, and this is really important. Um, Whenever you're doing any aneurysm measurements, you always wanna make sure that you're making measurements that are perpendicular to the long axis of the, or flow axis of the aorta. And this is from these guidelines, and this is not the only place this has been um, described. I mean, this is, people talk about this all the time. Um, I think in a busy practice, we certainly don't always follow these rules. Um, uh, But nonetheless, if if you're doing a dedicated CT angiogram study, I think it's, I think you really have to make sure that you are doing your measurements in this method. You're, you're perpendicular to the long axis. You're not doing axial measurements because they are, as this uh, quote says, inherently incorrect because of, um, <clears throat> because of the obliquity of the vessel we're measuring. So here's an example. Um, this patient has an aneurysm that measures eight centimeters if we are perpendicular to the long axis um but nine centimeters if we are using the axial images and that's because it's running obliquely in the axial plane and so you're getting a larger measurement an oval shaped measurement on the uh, axial images so a, a full centimeter difference can can be quite a lot and if it just so happens that i measured eight centimeters last time with my report because i did mine as a double oblique image, uh, reconstruction, and then then the next person, the next radiologist measures it off the axial and gets nine centimeters, then one could say that this patient has had an aneurysm that's grown by a centimeter, and if it's been less than a year, then that would put them in the category of needing to have elective repair, um, and so you can really cause a lot of trouble uh, for the patient by um, uh, you know, measuring these things inaccurately, and, and in particular also being inconsistent in the way you measure them over time and between radiologists. So the centerline software, um, and this is an example of one type of centerline software, but all the vendors have something like this, Um, basically will contour the edges of the aorta and then identify the middle of the vessel on that contour and then do that iteratively over the length of the entire vessel and then basically define the the centerline that way. And um, this makes it super easy to do Um, these short axis perpendicular measurements because it reorients the plane to the the perpendicular to the long axis for you and all you have to do is just make the measurement itself or even most of the time, I'll just give you the measurement and you just put it in your report. Here's another example, a more recent piece of hardware or software that we use. Um, You can see the yellow line on the left hand image is that center line and then on the right, it basically stretches out the vessel along the center line. And in those little tiny boxes, you can see area and diameter measurements. Those are automated measurements that are performed perpendicular to the aortic wall. Um, And uh, those are the ones you can use for your reports. Um, Just another example. This is somebody with a really large aneurysm. Um, I find these center line really helpful in particular for the ascending aorta, which can be, if it's dilated, can, can be really tough sometimes to get the measurement just right, um, so uh, these ones are, are really helpful in that situation. If you don't have the centerline um, option for whatever reason, then the other thing you need you should be doing instead, is you should be doing manual double oblique NPRs, and these are just as good as the centerline option. Um, how do you do them? You basically create um, these NPR images, and the concept is you want to have two of your planes, usually the, um, you know, say for instance the X and the Y plane, should be aligned with the long axis of the vessel. And if you do that, then your third plane, and make sure all your planes are 90 degrees perpendicular to each other, your third plane, your Z plane, will be um, uh, uh, oriented um, perpendicular to the long axis of the vessel. And so you can check that by looking at your images, in this case, the orange line in the upper left and upper right hand images represents the short axis plane. You just wanna visually look at that and make sure that the orange line is 90 degree perpendicular to the wall of the aorta that you're measuring. And as long as you've got that, um, then you should have a very accurate measurement um, and you can report that. And that's just as good as the center line, it's just a little slower to do it uh, manually. One check you can use is making sure that your uh, aorta that you're measuring looks like a circle. You know, if it looks kind of oval, then there's a good chance you might be off axis and you should you know, take another look and, and reorient your um, uh, planes. Okay, so that sums up uh, what we're gonna review today for the thoracic aorta. And just in conclusion, um, it's important to remember that imaging dictates treatment decisions. So so we wanna make sure that we are doing our best to make accurate and reproducible measurements. And that five and a half centimeter number is is the really important number to remember. The other one is that one centimeter per year number. Those are the types of aneurysms that are repaired electively, whether thoracic or abdominal. And so those are the things to keep in mind. Um, And just just remember, 3D workstations are valuable for improved visualization. So your volume rendered images and soon your cinematic rendering images um, and communication of findings. But then also those centerline techniques really, really help with uh, making sure your measurements are reproducible and accurate. And so if you have access to this, I highly recommend it. Um, and I just want to acknowledge Pam Johnson. So, one of my colleagues here at Hopkins, um, she provided some of the slide content. So, I appreciate that. And uh, thank you for your attention.